I would say the central premise of my work, whether it's fiction or whether it's nonfiction, is I don't have the answers. I don't think you have all the answers either. So let's just try to figure this out the best we can. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where my partner, Joe Fabrito and I talk about the business of sports with all kinds of interesting personalities in our crazy sports world. Joe, how are you doing today? Good. And pioneers, Tom. And we actually have someone who is a pioneer. Right. I, am, I am really excited about this conversation because this is a guy that's going to be well known to our audience. Um, and I know we have limited time. So Joe, normally we would do a little back and forth about what's going on because there's plenty to talk about, cares about us. in the business. So, but um, let, let's jump into this conversation with um, a personality that is well known by sports, most sports fans, because he was one of the, I guess one way to describe them is one of the premier bloggers, sports bloggers of the aughts. When um, it was a thing. When, when blocking was a thing. Um, it's been a really interesting career. He's got a background in journalism that spans co college newspaper to New York Magazine to MLB Network. Um, but he's probably best known for the founding of Deadspin in 2005. And he's also a published author. We're going to talk a little bit about that today because he, and, and by the way, I did not know this until we prepared for the call, Joe. This is his fifth book, which is yeah. very, very impressive to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we're talking about Will Leach, who is the founder of Deadspin. But these days, he is a, you can find him as a columnist and commentator for MLB. He's also a contributing editor at New York. He writes on Medium. In his spare time, he's a film critic, I understand, uh, on a thing called Grierson Leach. And he writes books when he has extra time. So... Will, I don't know how you do it. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's worth noting that I've written five books, but none in 10 years or more more, more to the point, none since I had children. So this was okay. the first time that I, they were able, I, I felt comfortable enough putting them in a room and being away from them long enough, knowing they would not set something or themselves on fire. So right. that's, so that's by, the only way I was able way, to get your back. First, yes. Your first four were non-fictions, correct? There was a young adult novel. There was a young okay. adult novel that, that, that came out in October, 2005, about a month after Deadspin launched. That was very confusing to everyone. <laughs> so it was like, wait, we don't know what Deadspin is. This is weird and strange. And also there's a YA novel he wrote that has nothing to do with sports. It was a very strange time. So that one kind of got lost in the shuffle and quite understandable. So. All right, Joe, if you don't mind, I'm going to kick off a question that actually had, I, I wrote down a bunch of thoughts and questions that I personally was interested in, in talking a little about. Um, Fire away, Tom. And it's, well, it's, it's a good segue from this last comment. It's interesting to me when, quote, journalists and writers of typical, you know, commentators, nonfiction folks, bloggers, get into the fiction game, because it's a different world. It's a different, it's a different muscle set and stuff like that. You've now done it twice. I didn't realize you had done it previously, but you actually have like a legit novel out there now. The novel's called How Lucky. It was literally just published, I think, what, 10 days ago? Yeah, May 11th. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's cool. But but talk about that for a second, how all your, when you think about your background as a blogger and journalist, you were kind of observing the world, thinking about your commentary, sharing your thoughts in all different kinds of ways, and you had the wherewithal intellectually to jump into the, to the fiction business as a novelist. Yeah, you know, it's funny. 
it was always very strange, particularly back in the Deadspin days, that there was this notion that somehow, um, you know, because I think Deadspin was so new and so different than what had been out there, there was this notion that somehow I was some sort of entrepreneur or visionary or something like, I, I'm just a writer, you know, and that's kind of all I ever was. And I, yeah, I, Deadspin for me, I know for a lot of people, Deadspin's a lot of things. But for me, there was like a box and I had to fill it with words and I had to do that many times a day. And then I did that again the next day. And I had sources, not to say that I wasn't using, I didn't actually have sources and so on. But for me, it was always a writing thing rather than a, uh, than a uh, invent sport, reinvent sports media sort of thing. And so uh, to me, I think there was always kind of a through line with that. With fiction, you know, I have to say, um, I was kind of at first it's exciting to write fiction after you've been doing journalism for a long time. Cause you're like, great. You're not constrained by all the things that actually happened. You can just make the little people do what you want them to do rather than what they actually did. <laughs> Unfortunately, the problem is, is in the real world, uh, particularly I would say in the last year or last five years or so, we've all kind of accepted that like humans act irrationally. They act irrationally. They do things for no reason. We just kind of struggle and be like, yeah, people are crazy. Strange things happen all the time. But in fiction, we will not allow that. We will not do that. We will not allow that. So you have to, the, the, the first draft of fiction is much easier. It's making all the parts fit later on. Uh, that, that That is a hard part for me, but it's fun and exciting. But, you know, I do think it's, Similar muscles uh, in a lot of ways because you know the the main character of How Lucky, uh, his name is Daniel. He's 26 years old and he lives he lives in Athens, Georgia, where, where I live. So that part wasn't too hard. But uh, he has uh, he has a, a disease called spinal muscular atrophy, uh, which is the same disease that my son's best friend has, which would inspire me to write the book. But listen, I am an able-bodied person. And I recognize by nature I can never understand what it's like to have SMA better than someone that actually does have SMA. And so that's where the journalism part comes in. And I. Just just like interviewed as much, like interview as many people as possible. Talk to Miller and his family. Miller's my friend, my my uh, son's best friend, and everybody I came in contact with could talk to about SMA. Just to like say, tell me all the stuff that I'm going to get wrong. And I kind of felt like I, I would talk to other people that worked in that, that traditionally did fiction, and a lot of them would be like, ah, it's fine, it's fiction. People will just go with it. And I'm like, first off, I doubt that's true. And two, uh, this is where you got to. This is what a journalist does, right? Like you have to get it right and that I, I can tell the story and i think the story i hope the story is a good one and people can react to it but like if if people that have disabilities or people have sma are reading this and be like yeah this guy has no idea what he's talking about it's going to take him completely out of the story so uh for me that is uh, uh that was definitely the crossover of it what was just making sure you get that part right uh, but it, and it's writing, you know, it's still writing. And I like to think that uh, when I'm blogging or I'm doing a, a, a short piece for the web for New York Magazine, those are pretty well written too. Like I, I certainly, I certainly don't go with the idea like, oh, this is on the internet. I don't have to try. This is great. Like I've never really had that idea. And so because of that, I think it makes it, uh, uh, it made the transition less of a transition, I suppose. Which is harder writing fiction or nonfiction? And did you learn, were there things that you could adapt from nonfiction that you put into your fiction work? Um, I uh, definitely, uh, on, the la on the last question, the idea of, again, not just the research, but you know, I one thing I say the writing on the internet for a long time did help me with the book. I hope the book is propulsive. Like I want the book to be a easy, quick, 
read i mean from that seem even people that like don't like the book they're like well it moves fast i'm like okay i'll take that i'll take that and because uh, i do i want that i want to move fast. a because as you might notice i talk fast and so i tend to that's why i can't do the audiobook they're like wow this book is 304 pages and 20 minutes of an audio book we can't let this happen at all 1.5 speed on a podcast yeah yeah i've I've had people put my podcast before on 1.5 and they say it's like the micro machines guy from back in the day the uh for this if i'm dating myself a little bit on that one but anyway more to the point that like you know i do think that i want there to be you know, I, I, I'm very obsessed with making sure I keep people's attention uh, as, as, a, as someone that's written online for a long time, because, you know, I like writing long. I actually, I, one, I, I like writing on, online. To me, one of the things that was most exciting about writing online in the first place was like, wow, you mean you're not going to constrain me to a certain number of column inches? I don't have to fit this into a certain number of pika, uh, you know, and, and so uh, that was what initially excited me because I came up in the traditional journalism world and the traditional world of newspapers that for me, I was like the internet was wow i could just write really long and so you learn as you go along that how to keep people's attention hopefully while writing long things and so that part came into effect but the actual physical writing of it you know it's similar muscles to be honest you know it's 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 knowing a story and trying to tell it the right the the best way uh and that that part is similar and after a while i always heard I would hear from novel writers before I, I, I don't know if I still would classify myself as one, but uh, I've heard hear from novelists and friends of mine that worked in novelists. And like, they would say things like, oh, well, you're the character of, of Jennifer just kind of took on a life of her own. And I just kind of followed her along. And I was like, well, that sounds completely pretentious and not true. I don't believe that at all. And I, kind of understand it now I, I still find it a little I find it a little like who I'm just the author so way like comedians will be like oh I don't have any thoughts about politics I'm just making jokes like you obviously have some thoughts about this and so um but I do however think that like it I, maybe there are maybe better writers can do this but for me once I kind of figure out what the story is I'm kind of going there and you know the idea that like hey I can just fix whatever I want because I'm writing it doesn't really I feel like once you figure out the story you have to stay true to the story uh, even though you technically speaking because you are the god of this universe could move things wherever you wanted but once you kind of figure out the story similar in journalism you just kind of have to follow it so when you go back and we'll go back into the Wayback Machine in a couple of minutes about uh, uh, Deadspin and, and some of the things that you've done. But it's interesting when you go into uh, do your nonfiction writing, like, have you ever put yourself into the mind of Tony La Russa or Albert Pujols as you're writing something, especially being a Cardinals fan uh, from from the glory days? Or is it just, you know, you're writing it as you being the person in the stands or the fan in the stands? Do you actually try to get into their mind like you would in, in nonfiction? Yeah, to be honest, I actually feel like that's kind of always been the idea. It's why it wasn't too hard to inhabit other people in this because I don't, okay, this is why I'll I'll try to phrase this carefully, but like I'm really bad at social media. And the really, the reason I'm bad at social media is I'm not actually very sure of myself. And and it's and to me that like we could argue I think there's been a lot of good of social media I would argue where we have access to so many new voices that we'd have never had in the past I think there's a lot of value I'm not saying there isn't value in it but I think the reason I'm not good at it is because I don't even think back in Deadspin people went to Deadspin and be like wow let's hear what Will's hot take is on everything like it wasn't that kind of site and I I don't feel at least I hope it wasn't that kind of site. I don't feel that like if you read my stuff, you're going to be like, wow, 
about what's Will's hot take on this. Like I'm notoriously, like my takes are all so lukewarm. They're also, well, in the vast spectrum of the world, like it's right. quite complicated and nuanced and it's very difficult. Who knows what can be, who, who is right about things. And that can sometimes maybe, it's perhaps it's, has cost me a slot on around the horn. I, 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 can't, I can't speak to that, but certainly, you know, I think it's actually kind of fun to try to imagine what it's like to imagine what Tony Lewis is thinking. Imagine like, uh, you know, what, what he's trying to hang on to, what he, uh, the change that he is resistant to. And also just kind of the, the almost the Shakespearean aspect of the idea that a guy like Tony LaRussa, of course, when he came up was the vanguard and was the brand new guy when he was managing the White Sox the last time to have come all the way back around to be the one that that the older managers were upset by in the 70s to be the one that's upset about the game now speaks like that's a story like that's a fascinating kind of story and that's it's more interesting to think of things that way than to think of things in Tony LaRusso is an old guy doing this old guy like it's just I, I mean that may be true but I don't find it particularly interesting and when it comes to like the, the assurance thing i i this is why again another reason i'm bad at social media i will go on social media and people are so certain of themselves in mm-hmm. every single possible way and i don't know about you but like you know i i think most people eventually go to sleep at night and turn the lights off and look up at the ceiling and they are alone maybe their spouse is next to them reading or but you're alone with your thoughts you're no longer speaking to the these chorus of people that are out there in the world trying to impress them or trying to annoy them or so on you're just yourself looking up at the ceiling and i'm wondering are they are they really looking up thinking like wow i got everything right today i nailed it i'm just <laughs> awesome at everything all the time everything i said was correct i am unimpeachable in every way i assume they're not doing that maybe they're superpowers and, I, and i'm just the weakling but to me i think most people recognize that the world is difficult and complicated and confusing and a lot of this assurance i would argue is performative and i'm bad at performing <laughs> so uh, so for me like my I, I would say the central premise of my work whether it's fiction or whether it's nonfiction, is i don't have the answers i don't think you have all the answers either so let's just try to f- figure this out the best we can and uh you know i i part of it's my conversational style too like as you may have noticed sometimes uh, a friend once said the way i talk is like i'm in a room full of doors and some are locked and some are unlocked and i don't know until i've fidgeted with them and i go over here and that one's locked like over here and that was locked. like oh this one's unlocked i can go through that one when i'm writing you don't see me unlock trying to get those other doors locked and so that's what i love about writing i can clear out all the mess that's in here that's screwing thing up and just say what i'm trying to say right so i do want to take a quick trip back on in this wayback machine show reference but but we're going to understand that anybody well no but (laughs) on this last point because i i think will makes a really great point about this um, performance art of social media for many people, uh, feigning the self-assurance when most people are not super self-assured. And it is an interesting thing vis-a-vis longer form journalism, but I wanna um, go back to the founding of Deadspin and how purposeful you were at the time to actually think about a more provocative blog to cover sports. Because you were, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the leader of Deadspin. I was the, uh, it was, it was, people you hired had to be instructed to some level about (laughs) what they should be doing and and how they should be performing their journalistic duties. So, so you would be credited with the creation of what became 
a, a really fascinating almost experiment in sports journalism that really did influence a, a lot that followed in social media. Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, I can, I can say, like, one of the reasons I left it's been is I, I never wanted to be a boss. Like, I never, like, high, like, the only, like uh, basically, the site was me and then the late Rick Chandler, who passed away in 2019. Uh, basically, he was in San Francisco, and he could do the overnight post him so I could sleep, because I was working 18 hours a day back then, because it was my big break. You know, I was, I feel like I had advanced when Deadspin started, because I was already 30. Like I was not, I, I, I think there was this idea at the time that there was this punk kid that come out of college and ready to rip stuff up. And I'm like, I was 30 years old. I'd already like, I was working in, I'd worked in financial journalism and was horrible at it. I'm sorry, I did not see the financial crisis coming. I was terrible at financial <laughs> journalism. And I probably like talked to people and they were like, this guy has no idea. This guy's the worst journalist in the world. I'd answered phones to the doctor's office. Like, I just like, I like, by the time that Deadspin came around, I actually was taking it pretty seriously because it was a break. It was like, I, I, I actually thought worst case scenario, it would run for six months and maybe someone, an editor at New York Magazine would see it and be like, all right, let's let this guy write some front of the book stuff until, uh, and it, it, maybe we'll get like, to me, it, it's not that to say it was careerist, but it was just, I wasn't, to me, I didn't imagine, what I did discover pretty quickly was that sports, was so kind of self-serious in a way that even just being anything other than Brett Favre is either the hero among men or a choker uh, was somehow like was was like Shakespearean for like a lot of, for uh, a lot of people and and completely upset the, or the idea of you know the fundamental to me uh, what I would argue one of Desmond's fundamental insights was the idea that more people knew who Chris Berman was than the shortstop for the Tampa Bay Rays and so therefore you should cover sports accordingly and that struck me as incredibly strange that people did not do that 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 that, that was not like a like we're gonna go get the media people like i'm a media person i like media people i'm not like trying to go out and get anyone i don't even i, I it's funny as i've gotten older my level of interest in media stories has dwindled to almost no no lo love to richard deitch and love to brian curtis and love to all those guys but i just don't care because i just want i just i find myself just caring about the sports now but certainly at the time uh that was unusual it was unusual to do that sorry yeah uh yeah, yeah um, just a quick follow-up when did you first realize Deadspin was a thing. It, it was weird because, you know, it, it, one of my favorite things, one of the first articles written about, someone called it an insider sports blog. And I was like, I am little, I don't know anyone. I'm literally sitting in my, at the time, my uh, my uh, Lower East Side apartment uh, in the small, tiny television watching ESPN 2's cold pizza and be like, wow, I am the worst. Like, how can I possibly be an insider? This? I know nothing. But what I did discover, I would say the thing that I discovered quickly was names that I knew and admired started reaching out to me saying things like, wow, we wish we could do what you were doing. We, th this, you're saying the stuff that we, we know to be true and want to say, but cannot. And that to me felt like, okay, I think we're onto something. I think we may be onto something mm -hmm. here. But, you know, again, I don't, you know, 
that's been obviously changed after I left. I left in 2008. I mean, like it's, I've really been gone like a long time. And of course went to AJ Delario and then went to Tommy Craggs and Tim Marchman and then uh, Megan Greenwell. And uh, then it's never published again. It never published again after November uh, tw- uh, 2019. What a relief that the Deadspin never published a new story. Whoo. Um, anyway, uh, but I would say that uh, uh, they all did such a great job and but they expanded it. They they gave it a, a life that I would have never imagined because they're actual editors. Like they're actual editors. They're actual. They 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 put together staffs. They had a scope that I would have never dreamed of for Deadspin because I don't want to be an editor. Editors are way too valuable to have me soiling them by pretending to be able to do their job. I wanted to write, and so once it became clear that for Deadspin to get as large as it probably really needed to get. Uh, I I knew that well, I w- I didn't want to do it anymore because I I don't want to run a staff I want to write that was the point right and, and in that and, first yeah. but, but well let me go back to this in, yeah. in that first year or so when did you realize like oh, what was the yeah. story or the controversy or the feedback where you realized like oh my god I got I got a, a tiger by the tail here okay so there were probably two things one was uh, there's an old baseball player named Matt Lawton uh, who was an outfielder for the Minnesota Twins. And uh, there was a blind item in like the the notes section in the sporting news. And let's see how long ago this was, uh, where like they said a player had been busted for for steroids and was about to be suspended. The team was trying to keep it quiet, and I was like, "Well, that's insane! This is like a big baseball rule. How can you keep that quiet?" So I started sniffing around, sniffing around, sniffing around and found that it was Matt Lawton. So I published it because I didn't know why anyone else wasn't publishing it. That that it was Matt Lawton, and I remember like like five to 10 minutes later, it was on the scroll of ESPN2. And I was like, oh my God, I made the television happen. That was weird. I was just sitting here. Um, But if there was a story that broke huge, I would say the one that broke huge was there was a photo. There was a photo of uh, Kyle Orton, a uh, quarterback for the uh, Chicago Bears at the time, who who, uh, everyone was a little surprised at the time was in fact the starting quarterback for the Chicago Bears. And, uh, but he, there was a picture of him at a bar and he had he had like a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand, and and it was and it was spilling down his shirt, and he was laughing. He was joyous, like he was. This was not like a how embarrassing, how foolish guy. And, and and for the record, it's weird because I think sports was so not used to how these things worked. I had friends that worked ran political blogs or entertainment blogs, and they're like, "Oh my god, you guys are the nicest blog. Why is everybody so mad at you all the time?" I'm like, "It's sports. It's really conservative." Um, but basically, like there were just pick, there was a site that had a ton of pictures of Kyle Orton from this night out uh, during his off week in Des Moines, Iowa. So I saw these pictures. I was like, well, that's obviously Kyle Orton. And that's kind of funny. It's not like he's doing anything wrong. It's an off day. And I wrote the piece accordingly. And it became a huge deal. But there was a huge deal I discovered very quickly among media people but not among players. Uh, media people right. were like, oh my gosh, what's happening? What's that? He's going to jump. I remember Richard Deitch email, interviewing me for Sports Illustrated at the time. It's like, would you jump out of the bushes to go get a picture of someone? I said, no. What? That sounds That sounds like very, there are professionals that can do that. I'm not going to do that. And, but it, that was kind of the mindset at the time, right? And would you dig through someone's trash? I was like, yes, I hope you would, Richard. Like, you should totally do that. What are we doing here? And 
So I think that was like the mindset of it. But what was funny, there was a great interview with Kyle Orton because they asked him at practice about the pick because it had gotten big enough. He said, yeah, I saw those. They were pretty funny. I'd heard all about them. I got a ride home. It was my off week. I haven't missed a day of practice. I'm a grown human being who gets to enjoy his life. I thought it was funny. And it was, and it, it, the athletes themselves had no issue with this. They were like, they, I, I'm sure that Orton would all told not have to deal with the headache of the questions, but the idea that this was some new vanguard where we were invading the private life of athletes, it, it was, it did not seem to be, that was something that athletes had a much better understanding of how this worked than a lot of people in the media did. But certainly that was one that, 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 that allowed, and I'm glad we did that story because it was fun. It was funny. It was good. And it spoke to like the general ethos of the site, which is, listen, we're having fun here. We're not trying to screw over anybody. And look, athletes are human beings, just like you are. Uh, and athletes get it if the media don't. But what happened was that then turned into dead spin, jumping out of the bushes and, and digging through your trash and, and that sort of, sort of thing. And so that allowed me to kind of double down a little bit on the, I'm just a Midwestern nice guy. I'm 30 years old. I'm, I'm not like, you know, the, the famous Costas uh, incident from back in the day. Like I think people expected me to show up with like a leather jacket and like spiked hair. I'd be like, screw you on your media, you know? And I, and I like came in, you know, just like the schmuck I am. And, uh, and, uh, but that was, that was definitely, it was a weird time. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to leave to be honest. Cause I'm like, I, I know what they think this site is and what they think I am and they are wrong. <laughs> and I did not want that to get calcified in a, cer in a certain sort of level. Buzz Bissinger, where are you now? Anyway, we went I mean, for, the, for the record, Buzz Bissinger is actually uh, publishing a book with my editor of How Lucky. So, so we, we occasionally say hello to each other uh, through, through our editor and uh, he yeah, does it a little, I do it faster, but he does it louder. Hey, well, you touched on something there about, you know, let's, let's take this a little less seriously. And this is a very business where people take themselves very, very seriously. It's now, uh, we're here at the end of May. You wrote a piece in your newsletter earlier in May, I think it was last week, where you talked basically about the last year. And one of the things I've learned is who cares whether, you know, there's a runner on second base in the 10th inning. Is that something that you came to now? Or is it something that you've kind of evolved through as a dad? Or was it something that, like you touched on, it was kind of the basis of Deadspin when, when you started out? Yeah, yeah. And this, for the context, the mindset of that is basically, I find like like debates that I used to get absolutely furious about, like Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame. I used to, like, I, mm -hmm. I'm still, I still believe that Pete Rose has no business in the Hall of Fame. But if he gets in, I now, like, it'll be okay. I'll make it. <laughs> like, I'll still be able to get up and walk, to, walk my kids to school in the morning. And I think that's something that's evolved a little bit just because uh, partly it's always been kind of the mindset of like not being a hot takey, you know, fight sort of guy. But I certainly do think during the pandemic, I was surprised like the 2020 baseball season was, I'm a baseball fan first. I, I love all sports. The baseball is mm -hmm. my sport first. And the 2020 baseball season, I think we could all agree was not ideal. <laughs> it was difficult and it was weird. And I, it, it just, it feels the writer Joe Sheehan has, has said, like historians should kind of ignore stats from 2021, 2020. I don't necessarily go that far. I think the Dodgers are still legitimate champions, but certainly it was a weird year. I caught myself like listening to games rather than watching them. I can convince myself that it was normal because it was strange and weird. And then they crown a champion and then a guy with COVID the tested positive during the game runs on the field with no mask. Like it was just a crazy, crazy time. And I found myself just kind of being grateful that it was happening at all. And really appreciative of things that I 
had not only taken for granted, but taken so for granted that I couldn't even appreciate the good stuff about him, you know, and mm -hmm. appreciate the, like everything is a fight and everything is in the trenches. And so I, I got to go to a baseball game. This I went to the Yankees game. Uh, I love, by the way, I'm very pro showing your vaccination card to get into baseball games. I know some people are about that, but crying out loud, like we just went through a huge pandemic. You're not the only hit one here, pal. Just like get along, go along. Um, but anyway, um, I be able to go and just like everything just feels the grass was greener. The ball was popping louder against the glove. Just, I know that'll go away. I know that I know we'll get used to it and get back in our fights again, but I kind of want to hang on to that as long as I can. That notion of like, we're just kind of fortunate and lucky to get to do any of this. And uh, I think it's important to kind of hang on to. And so therefore those kind of long debates about the DH, the DH is a great example too. Like, I feel like I spent my entire life as a Cardinals fan, a national league fan, everyone's screaming. I remember Howard Megdol, the, the, the great writer. And I, he was like, I will stop watching baseball if they ever do the DH. And I checked in with him last year. He's like, yeah, it's, I guess it's fine. It'll be all right. Cause, cause we're not going to like quit baseball at a certain level and I, we don't have to go to the map hole in this but i think baseball is one of the sports that always is caught in this catch 22 of um um what's wrong with baseball how are we going to fix it but also please don't change anything about baseball and and i feel like that's and i i feel like if we just relax and just realize there's baseball it's happening at least until labor issues destroys it all in december but um uh, there's baseball it's happy we should appreciate it and i'm finding that kind of my viewpoint on a lot of things uh, i'll get back to being caustic eventually i promise but uh, i'm gonna enjoy yeah. it now hey um well, one thing and i know tom wants to talk about the digital stuff one question i had that a lot of our we bring up a lot of times is time management how do you manage your time in 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 doing all the pieces that you do throughout the course of a week I am. I have been doing a list on my steno pad. Uh, literally, it's. It's. I, I. I will try not to curse, but it's a uh, poop to get done. Uh, that I've done the same list for for every single year, probably for like twenty five years now. And it's just tasks, and there's something to be. The Atlantic had a great piece about the other day about the glory of the checkmark. Like I am a task oriented. I'm the person that gets to the airport three hours early. Like I. I. My first date with my wife. Each of us showed up forty five minutes beforehand and knew that. Like, all right, we're on the same side here. I am an organized person because I want to be able to do this. This is why I, I feel like as, as someone that writes for a lot of different places, my goal is to make my editor happy for a few reasons. One, because he or she is working constantly and dealing with flaky writers all the time. And so I want to make their life easier. But two, I get a lot more freedom if they can trust me and they know I can be counted on, I can be organized. And next thing you know, I'm getting away with writing stuff they never should be letting me <laughs> write in that regard. So uh, to me, it is as simple as time management. I have an email box zero. I keep very, I'm very organized. And uh, that's a Midwestern thing. Uh, you know, my, my, like, I don't have any writers in my family. <laughs> like there's nobody that's not like, there's nothing like that. Like my dad is an electrician, my mom's a nurse. And if they weren't organized, there would be no power and or patients would die. <laughs> like to me, it's like, I, I don't really feel like it's a, I don't treat this any differently than any other profession where work has to get done. And so get the work done. And uh, um, that, that's kind of my thought on it, uh, to be honest. And also that's I great. love to do this. I like, this is my favorite thing to do. Uh, so as long as I get to keep doing, it, I'm going to keep doing it. All right. Cool. I know we only have about eight or 10 minutes left, but I want to ask one more kind of sports business journalism question. Of course. Well, what do you think of the injection of gambling into the, bloodstream of the sports business that has that has become kind of the the talk of the town and the business what, what's your thought about that vis-a-vis -vis how sports is 
consumed, how sports is reported, how sports is developing fans and, and everything around it. Yeah, I am a longtime Cassandra uh, in this regard. Uh, the the literally part of the Deadspin origin story was uh, uh, when when Gawker, because uh, Deadspin was a part of Gawker back in the day before the Hulk Hogan business, but we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but they had read my work, uh, Nick Denton and Lockhart Steele, who was his second person, had read my work and they had a deal for a gambling web. Remember Bodog? There was Bodog. Mm -hmm. A place that was a little ahead of its time. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bodog wanted to sponsor a gambling blog for six months. They were giving them money. They said, well, we like your work. Would you like us to do this gambling site? We'd like to do this gambling site for us. I said, well, I think gambling on sports is wrong, corrosive, and will eventually destroy lives. So I'm probably a bad person to do your gambling site. Uh, <laughs> however, you should do a sports site. That's what I pitched. That's, that, that's the, and yeah, I have to say, and there are intelligent people who I respect who disagree with me on this. They are of, they are of the self-policing idea that anything untoward that might happen in, in athletics, uh, gamblers, the market itself will, will, will ferret out. The idea that if someone is trying to, uh, if, a, if a player is trying to spread points or shape points or to someone throw a game, the market will figure that out before it happens. I don't, I, 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 every time someone sells me the market, the invisible hand of the market will fix things. I tend to not believe them, but whatever, they might know the gambling in industry more than me. Uh, but I think there's going to be a major, I think in the next 10, on one hand, I think in the next 10 years, there's going to be a major gambling scandal and we should have all seen it coming because how could there not be? If I eventually, I'm going to be able to be at the free throw line in a game and wink to my buddy on the sideline who will make a, who will make a bet right there from his phone in the mat. Like there's just no way that's not going to happen. Like, like it, it doesn't even require people to be particularly corrupt. It just, like at a certain level, people get in desperate situations. It seems rather obvious that it's going to happen. They claim that like they, the market will ferret that out. We'll see. But I would argue the larger problem, as you're kind of hinting at, is existential, which is the idea, you know, the thing that I love about sports uh, still today uh, is if my team wins, I am happy. And if my team loses, I am sad. And those are two very opposite end emotions and they are pure and they are not complicated and they are not confusing. And I love sports that way. I, I've always thought that sports is a way to get out, almost get out unpleasant emotions that are unacceptable to get out in other places. You know, the, the, I, uh, I think of things that like make me in, like literally jump up and scream in the world. It's like sports and like a spider, like a spider will also do that to me. Uh, but the, when you add in this aspect and not just add in, but make it the centerpiece of everything, inherently you're going to see people thinking of, A, there's a lack of community. There's a, the general lack of community of sports fandom. If, you know, what's the old idea that uh, uh, 25 players, 25 cabs, uh, like we're going to imagine that with fan. Like it's very, it, it, it feels weird to me to be at a game and suddenly everyone's just worried about their own gambling things and have that be the centerpiece of it. But I would also in a larger sense, when you, when it becomes the central idea, it breaks my heart. My nine-year-old, my nine-year-old is really obsessed with what the line is. He doesn't know. He's not trying to gamble. He's not trying to gamble. He doesn't know, but he's always like, wow, there's seven and a half. I would have thought that had been four and a half. I don't like, he's not saying, oh great. What a betting opportunity for me. It's it's just now ingrained to his understanding of sports and down that lifeline sure seems like peril uh, to me. And, and uh, maybe not 
but I, I, it certainly feels like one of those things. It feels like one of those things that, that uh, everyone has just decided that because they want it, everyone should be able to have it. And I get it. States are in dire financial straits. I understand. I get it. There's all sorts of things and no one's smoking anymore. So we can't, we can't get cigarette taxes. They have to, I get it. I understand that. And I understand why states would do it. I think leagues are, however, are asking for trouble uh, with this. I think, I think they're asking for trouble and uh, we'll see, but uh, certainly the gambling has always been a part of sports. I'm, I'm sensitive to the idea that like, okay, finally, we're just talking about in, in the open what people have been talking about all along. And I get that. I do get that. But I also like, as this, uh, you know, this as well as anyone, as the sports media industry has shrunk and one of some of the few opportunities left have become from these gambling places. Um, I love sports. I love writing about sports. I did not go into this to write about, you know, daily fantasy trips uh, from like, I, I assume most people didn't. And so, you know, I think that uh, you go where the market goes, but, you know, I've been in this long enough to understand that, like, I've, I've worked for a lot of different places and, like, generally speaking, sometimes the money's over here and then sometimes the money's over here, sometimes the money's over here, sometimes, was, like, uh, and, and my friends have had troubles getting, losing their newspaper jobs, crypto is the thing. Now, crypto is the, that's where the money is. And, and in the past, it was video. In the past, it was this. I just kind of feel like these things rise and fall and and in a lot of different directions but listen i am a bad person to ask about this because i think gambling is bad and you shouldn't do it so like i probably uh come in with an inherent bias with it well the horse is out yeah. of the barn so we'll have to yeah, see i know i know yes no no no, no. but if people <laughs> listen to me very clearly and then when i say guys it's bad they'll stop they'll stop i believe i believe that that is the power of my words <laughs> nice. and my voice one you're one blog post away from saving the sports <laughs> business from itself i know i quit too early i could have stopped it yeah Cool. Hey, uh, uh, Tom, you want to wrap us up? But the one thing, Will, if you haven't shown your son old episodes of The Odd Couple with a young Oscar Madison sitting in his bed betting on a game, you should probably do that and say, be careful, because that's who you can be. <laughs> no, he'd just be like, he's on TV. I want to be that guy. These are, my, my kids stop at that security light in the grocery store to watch yeah. themselves on the video. So uh, I'm, sure that, uh, I'm sure that will wow. be all they'll take away will be from Kids that. still do that. That's nice. Um, well, we only have a couple minutes left. So th uh, three quick things, two quick mm -hmm. questions, and then we want to be able to you to promote your book uh, and tell everybody where to find it. So quickly, because again, just a couple minutes, so short, short versions of these answers. What do you read to stay smart, to keep up as a journalist, to keep up as a sports observer, a writer, et cetera? And number two, can you offer any career advice, particularly young media people in the business? Uh, the first one, I just read literally like everything. I, 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 am, I, do, I do not use Twitter as an old RSS feed. That's got, mm -hmm. like, I, I find the only time I use Twitter to find stuff to read are writers that I admire. I will get alerts. So I don't, I know I don't miss anything from them. Uh, but I have my publications. Like, again, that's an old school sort of thing. But like, there are publications that I know are going to be good. And things eventually find them. Like, I'm discerning enough that like, I actually find medium where, where I write is a good place to be able to find a lot of different uh, perspectives as well. Um, as for young, you know, I, I'm almost O for lifetime on this. Like, like I, I remember being in like 2008 being like, I know they're talking about putting videos on there, but this YouTube thing ain't going to work. Like you know, I'm notoriously wrong about a lot of these things, but the only way I know how to do anything is to just make stuff. I mean, like in all honesty, like I, you know, before De I Deadspin obviously was, was my break, but like, I, I, when I got Deadspin, I was ready. 
And I mean that not just that I was a little bit much, I was older and mature, but like I had been writing for a long time for no money with no readership. So by the time that it came, by the time the Desmond was there, I had my voice. I knew what I was good at. I knew I did not sit there. You know, a common thing that young writers run into is like, well, what do I have to say that's different? Why, why do I, why do people have to listen to me? And if you're asking that, you've already lost. For the record, no one should listen to me about anything. That is not going to stop me from writing things. And so, you know, I think that uh, uh, it's figuring out what you are good at, what you want to do, and frankly, not deviating from it. That doesn't mean don't like go be broke, but it means, you know, make sure that all the, the roads are all making, even if you go off the path a little bit, you're still keeping your eyes on what you want to do in the long run. Uh, to me, that's the key thing. And then when it comes, people are always obsessed with like networking and so on. I, from my perspective, uh, I do know a ton of people in the media industry, but that's because I've known them for 25 years because we were all starving together in the early days. And now we know each other now, uh, as opposed to uh, going to this right party and making sure I meet the right people. Uh, you can't do that during COVID anyway. Wear a mask. No, don't wear a mask. Come on, you're vaccinated. Get vaccinated. Go have fun. The point is, is... Um, is that uh, uh, I networking to me has always felt something a little different than I think what the common uh, uh, definition of it is. Nice. Let's let's wrap up and make your publisher really happy. Uh, tell everybody about uh, where they can find how lucky. By the way, I gotta do a shout out for your choice of epigraph. <laughs> yeah. How lucky can one man get? Which is a lyric from John Prime. Great choice. Oh yeah, um, and he's uh, one of my favorite lyricists. And uh, fellow Midwesterner, fellow you, Midwesterner. You kind of, you kind of got me as soon as I saw the epigraph. So <laughs> yeah, you can't nice. go wrong with Prine. Tell uh, everybody, tell everybody about how lucky uh, quickly in terms of accessing it. Yeah, it is available everywhere. It's a HarperCollins book, so you really can get it wherever you want. You know, uh, I encourage everyone to buy it from the local bookstore. It should be there. Most local bookstores, not all, but most local bookstores are open now. Uh, ours is not open, but I've been able to go sign books there, and it's been so awesome to be like, I'm in a bookstore again. But uh, it's everywhere. Like It is commonly found everywhere. We've got a very nice blurb from Stephen King, uh, uh, who I do not know personally, but uh, somehow came across the book and started randomly tweeting about it obsessively, which was disorienting, I will say, but i uh, obviously not something that made my publishers unhappy. Um, but yeah, you can find it through Amazon, your local bookstores. Uh, I it's a, also, it was a book of the month club selection and book of the month is a great service, by the way, if you ever, if you're looking to find new voices and new books, month, book of the month club is a, is an excellent place to get it. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, you, wherever you want, you can get it on uh, Kindle. Uh, a man named Graham Halstead did a terrific, my first ever book that I've had an audio book of. And he did a terrific job. So you can get it through there as well, through Audible. But uh, well, if Joe, look, if the book is wanna... behind you right now. The book is nice. everywhere. It's literally behind you. Turn around. Don't No sudden movements, but it's right there. Well, if Joe and I want to option the rights for a major motion picture, should we call you back? Uh, yeah, that's above my pay grade. You got you to talk, <laughs> talk to the big dogs for that. Uh, I'll just defer you. I would just be like, oh, no, sure, make it. And then my agents would club me over the head with a bat. So nice. um, hey, um, before we let you go, your newsletter, where can people sign up for your newsletter, which is great, that comes out every week? Yeah, but weekly newsletter comes out every Saturday morning. It's free. Uh, it's, it's at William F. Leach, L-E-I-T-C-H dot subsec dot com. It is free. It has an original essay along with links to everything I wrote that week. And uh, and hopefully it's funny and uh, it's good. But like that is, I would say that uh, uh, that is probably the purest form of what I'm trying to put out into the world is that weekly newsletter. And of course, how lucky the book from Harper Books all over yeah. everywhere. And your column in New York Magazine. Great, yeah, great that, piece uh, Will did last uh, in the current issue about the NBA. How it's the league of the future. Um, yeah, still. I, I love that piece, by the way. Thank you for doing <laughs> oh, thank that. You, thank you. Um, cool. 
anyway, Will Leach, man, that was a lot of fun. Thank you for sharing some time with us and, and all your, your thoughts on your career and what's going on in the business. Please, it's my pleasure and uh, holler anytime. And uh, I think we solved all the problems in this call. Uh, way to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's plan on getting back with you, like in two years, to see if gambling has brought down the American sports industry. Uh, if not, if it hasn't, I'm going to say, like I said two yeah, years ago, exactly. gambling well, is what's important. Now that we know that you missed the financial crisis of 08, oh, I, I think, so, I think we can so live with the sports gambling future. Very wrong. Cool. All right, thank you. Be safe. Thanks, Will. Have a good one. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time.